I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there? What got you? Got you? For anyone to absorb, to grasp, to wrap their brains around the 13.8 billion years of cosmic evolution, all the time since the Big Bang, was really impossible. We are mayflies. We live for a hundred years at most. So how do you do that as a teacher? And he came up with this idea of compressing that. Whole history of the cosmos into a single year at a glance calendar. Andrew Yan is a Peabody and Emmy Award-winning writer, producer, and director specializing in the communication of science. Drianne served for 10 years as the elected secretary of the Federation of American Scientists and was the creative director of NASA's Voyager Interstellar Message and program director for the first solar sail deep space mission launched on a Russian ICBM in 2005. She is perhaps most well-known for co-writing with her late husband, Carl Sagan, the original 1980s Emmy Award and Peabody Award-winning TV series, Cosmos, A Personal Voyage, which currently holds the title of the most-watched PBS series in television history. The duo also co-wrote six New York Times bestsellers, including Comet, Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, The Demon Haunted World, Billions and Billions, and The Varieties of Scientific Experience. Additionally, Drianne was co-creator and co-producer of the Warner Brothers feature film Contact, starring Jodie Foster. On this episode, Anne discusses the bold visionaries who advanced science, which are revealed in the third season of Cosmos, Possible Worlds, and her companion book being released by National Geographic. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor. Head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. So, Ann, I'm always fascinated when people have had just tremendous impact in a certain field, and I'm always curious about where that fascination came from. So for you, where did that love of science first begin? What a great question. For me, it was discovering the pre-Socratic philosophers of ancient Greece, the Ionian scientists who really invented science, who were the first people to search for a natural cause of the phenomena that mystified uh, their contemporary. And when I first found them, 
you know, these people who would not say, okay, it's the thunder, it's, you know, the wrath of Zeus or whatever. I just, I thought, wow, that was one of the great revolutions in history. And look how far that quest has taken us since then. And then, of course, I had the greatest honor and privilege to spend 20 years with Carl Sagan and to think and write with him and to build a family together. And Carl was certainly the most inspiring individual that I've ever known, both in his public persona, but also in his personal, his personal being, his, his goodness, his, his kindness. These things uh, have really inspired me. And, um, you know, I think I, I would be I would be happy to pay someone else to allow me to do this work because I, I, I believe in it so passionately. Yeah, no, I think many of us are, are most likely in awe of just the accessibility and, and things you've gotten to learn from Carl. Uh, I'm interested about the personal side of that and what things that you just got to see over those 20 years that people outside of those personal conversations wouldn't get to know. Are there certain things that have just really stuck with you? There's one thing I think that, um, you know, it really trumps all the rest. And that is, for Carl, it really mattered what was true, not just in science, but in his personal life. And I had come uh, to our relationship from a very different kind of background. I have wonderful parents, but... Well, my mother was a person with a magnificent imagination and a bit of a fabulist. And, you know, in a way, she had made me feel that it really didn't matter what was true, what mattered, what made for the best story. And learning to appreciate how critical that is, not only to our future as a species and a civilization, but also in order to nurture love to nurture a deep personal relationship, to always aim higher. You know, that wonderful ping-pong effect of love where one person does something that disarms the other. Then the other person tries to do something to amaze the first person, and that continues. And if you're on that trajectory with another human being, and that person loves being happy and loves the goodness of life, it's, um, you know, it's such a great voyage. And even though Carl has been gone for 23 years, I still feel the warmth and the glow of, of that love. That voyage makes me think about that, that pull, that, that feel towards who we must become. And you've got this unbelievable quote in the book, and it's, we all feel the chill our present casts on our future. And I would just love for you to talk about just the pull that you have towards who we must become. Well, I love my children and my grandchildren. And, you know, I I want to keep that love real. And for me, the reality about love is not forcing them to endure hardships that we can't even imagine. I mean, there's no way of making life safe. It's dangerous. It always has been. It always will be. But the scientists have been warning us for 70 years about the danger of lofting vast amounts 
of carbon dioxide and methane and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. They told us what would happen. They were correct in their predictions. If anything, their most dire predictions were somewhat conservative. And yet we couldn't take what they were saying to heart. We couldn't listen to them in such a way that it would make us act. I think one reason for that is we compartmentalize science and we don't make it a part of our daily life. And the dream of Cosmos is to empower the audience, both for the series and for the book, to make every one of the member of the audience more powerful so that they can know when they're being lied to, which, you know, which, which is what science does. It's an error-correcting mechanism to ferret out those things that we may want to be true or may be afraid uh, of, but which are not, in fact, reality. And so I feel like each of us, as citizens of this tiny pale blue dot, we have to be able to have the capacity to discern reality from fantasy. And since, as a species, we all tend to lie, we, we lie to each other, we lie to ourselves, and our leaders have been known to lie to us chronically. We have to be able to independently discern what's real and then act as informed decision makers. Yeah, the those informed decision makers. It's funny. I, I've been fortunate the the last few days just be, be reading the new book Cosmos: Possible Worlds, and one of those themes that just kept coming up were these great advancements in science. They were all or oftentimes from contrarians who who were shunned or not believed. Why do you think that is? Throughout all of history, it always seems that those are the contrar- contrarians who who are making these advancements. Well, so much of what we know, we think we know, so much of what we think we know and what we believe is part of, I think, our self-image, our self-esteem. We're invested in, in, in these ideas being true. And when someone comes along with better evidence, as often happens in science, then, you know, it's kind of disturbing because you have to unlearn things and learn new things. But the great strength of science, which I do not see in the other things that we do for the most part, is that science reserves its greatest prizes for that person who can provide evidence which shows that science has been wrong. Sometimes it doesn't happen quickly. Sometimes it's not a scientist up against the scientific community, but a scientist up against the state or the church, or, you know, there are many different versions of the story, but I think it's, you know, probably a selective advantage that we cling to some of the things that we want to believe because, you know, it's part of, of us sharing information with each other and being aware of the dangers that lurk. But we also have to develop that other skill which we have, which is for innovation and for the acceptance of hard truths in the service of our survival. 
Can you talk about that skill development? I'm thinking specifically around unlearn and then learn new things. One of the philosophies I use is strong opinions weekly held. And I'm always looking for, for new, new technology, new science that'll help me see things differently. How is this a skill you've been able to develop over the years? Well, I don't know that I have it. Um, you know, I, 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 I hope I do, but I'm not sure I do. <laughs> um, it's, it's just that, you know, when you've been wrong as many times as all of us have been wrong, <clears throat> um, I think that the only appropriate response, the only response that's going to help you is to embrace <clears throat> a new discovery when the evidence supports it. That's been the secret to our survival. We have been so adaptable throughout, let's say, the million years that we've been human. And certainly life before, before our humanity <clears throat> is tenacious. I mean, we are alive after five mass extinction events. <clears throat> I'm so sorry to be so froggy. That is because, that's because we are, life is so adaptable and tenacious. But here we are, really at this moment in our history, failing at the entry-level requirement for any organism, our failure to adapt, our unwillingness to change even small things about the way we live in order to make our species less of a threat to the, our own civilization and the other life on this planet. We're lazy, you know what? But we are descended from people who had their back to the walls. Every one of us is descended from life and from human beings who endured hardship that we can't even imagine. And if they hadn't, we wouldn't be here. But we, here we are. And now that civilization is in our hands. Yeah, I don't want to think that any of the listeners have, have come across the work before. And one of the big light bulb moments for me uh, with reading your work is with your talk around the cosmic calendars. And I would just love for you to dive into the cosmic calendar and kind of expand on on how little of a moment, a blip in history we've been here for. I think we'd really enjoy talking about this. Great. Well, you know, the cosmic calendar was one of Carl Sagan's brilliant inventions. He realized that for anyone to absorb, to grasp, to wrap their brains around the 13.8 billion years of cosmic evolution all the time since the Big Bang was really impossible. We are mayflies. We live for 100 years at most. So how do you do that as a teacher? And he came up with this idea of compressing that whole history of the cosmos into a single year-at-a-glance calendar. And that's what we've done again in this third season of Cosmos. We've, you know, um, taken the Big Bang on January 1st and all the way to this very moment that I'm speaking with you, which is midnight on December 31st. And what you realize when you do this is the vast expanse of time before we got here. You know, in March, the galaxies begin to form. Human beings don't appear on the cosmic calendar until the very last minutes of New Year's Eve on December 31st. The great teachers 
of human civilization only appear in the last 10 seconds of the cosmic calendar of the whole cosmic year. And so what we've been able to do in this series, because we have brilliant VFX supervisor who's created magnificent cinematic special effects, is to make the cosmic calendar more dynamic than ever, to make it come alive so that you're present at, uh, at the birth of the sun at uh, the first moments of the invention of agriculture, at the times of the great cities of our past, which we bring back to life uh, through the magic of these techniques. Oh my, I, I get chills you just talking about that. And, and I would love knowing about the first time you heard Carl discuss the cosmic calendar. Do you remember that? You know, I don't specifically remember that. I do remember vividly the very first meeting that we had for the first uh, pre-production gathering of all of some 40 people who were working on the show in one room. And uh, Carl insisted that each and every person, um, you know, completely the entire everyone, the people who were getting the coffee, everybody, have a seat at that table to discuss their greatest dreams for what the series would accomplish. And we went around the table and it was, you know, it was just a magnificent feeling of setting off on a great ship for unknown seas. And uh, I think back to that, I remember our very first production of the Cosmic Calendar. We were working with what was a brand new technology called green screen. And I don't know, I think it may have been used before us in television, but only sparingly. We were proposing to do the Cosmic Calendar at the Library of Alexandria and uh, a lot of these uh, sort of epic uh, sequences in Cosmos on green screen and the ship of the imagination, of course. And um, it worked beautifully because this was the first time that a computer that a, and a camera were linked up so that when Carl was ostensibly walking through the marble hallways of the Library of Alexandria, the computer was casting his shadow exactly where it should be. It, it, it lent a greater reality to the television experience. And uh, I think it still holds up having viewed it recently. Oh yeah, I'm I'm so excited. It's uh it's dropping in a few days on March 9th. So I've been able to 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 get excited through through the book the past few days but can't wait for the show. I'd love to even hear about just the origin story for the show Cosmos. How did you guys decide to bring this to television? Well, there had been um the Mariner mission to Mars. And the world's media had gathered at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory everyone, just to report on this phenomenal leap forward for our species, our civilization. And what happened was there was a dust storm on Mars. And the world media stayed for a couple of days. And of course, they got tired of waiting and moved on to other stories. And this really troubled Carl, because he was painfully aware of the disconnect between science and our civilization. He knew that it was a recipe for a disaster because our, our civilization is entirely dependent on science and high technology. 
And yet so few of us understood anything of how things work and what science is. And he really believed in small D democracy. And he felt very strongly that in order for each of us to be informed decision makers, we had to not only know something of the insights and methods of science, and, but, also, but also to have a kind of internal baloney detection kit to know when someone was trying to manipulate us, to sell us snake oil, and to deceive us about even more important things. And so that was the original dream of Cosmos, to tell the story of how the human species found its coordinates in space and time. And then my dream for this third season of Cosmos is to bring to life a dazzling human future, the one that we can still have if we start taking what the scientists are telling us to heart if we awaken from this sleepwalking and start to act on behalf of our children and great-grandchildren. This is what we have to do if we love them. And so instead of creating that dystopian future that we've seen too many times, of all of us living in container, in, in shipping containers, and the world ruined beyond recognition, and blighted and smelly and dirty, you know, I, for me, dreams are maps, and some of my most improbable dreams have come true. And I believe that this great dream of the future that will take the audience and the reader to the 2039 World's Fair or to the more distant future when humans are arrayed on the worlds of the galaxy, I feel that that's something we have to do not just for ourselves, but also for our children so that they will believe that we have a future and they will be willing to do the hard work that's required to become a scientist or an engineer or a teacher to do the things that our civilization desperately needs. What are some of those improbable dreams you had that came true? Oh, well, you know, I wasn't even smart enough to dream a life as great as the life that I've been having. For instance, you may know that I was the creative director of the Voyager Interstellar Message, these golden phonograph records affixed to both Voyagers. Well, I was never smart enough to dream that I could meditate for an hour, a few days, after I had fallen truly and madly in love with Carl and he with me, that I could meditate and have my EEG and EKG, my, the sounds, the signals from my brain and my heart during that meditation compressed into sound and put on two interstellar spacecraft that are now the furthest objects ever touched by human hands with a shelf life projected to be one to five billion years. These two spacecraft, unless they're intercepted by extraterrestrials, will wander the Milky Way galaxy and circumnavigate it 
eight times in the next five billion years. So my life, the beauty of my life, my relationship with Carl, our children, our family, my parents, the love that I have received from friends, all of those things. And then, you know, at age 70, to be leading a team of 987 people, we counted them up. This is not hyperbole. 987 people, the people it took to make the new season of Cosmos. That is a great, that is a completely improbable thing. When I was a girl, women were treated with the most heinous contempt. I don't think I even got to finish a sentence in a meeting until I was much old. You know, I was 30. And so, you know, the idea that I, as a woman, could be given this great honor and privilege to lead this series, to work with such distinguished people, many of whom, you know, have come from the motion picture business and were willing to work on Cosmos for far less than they would usually command because they wanted to be part of it, because they thought it meaningful. This is such an honor and such a joy. Um, you know, and then just one last thing. I'm sorry to be so long-winded. Oh, my God. I love this. No, please continue. Well, okay. So when Carl Sagan grew up in a working-class family that really existed, you know, really had a kind of subsistence existence, no money in the bank, paycheck to paycheck. And he lived in a small apartment in Brooklyn, back when Brooklyn was not the place everyone wanted to live. And, you know, when he was a child of 11 or 12, he made this drawing, which he wrote in pencil. He entitled The, the Evolution of Interstellar Space, uh, of Interstellar Space Flight. And the idea in this child's imagination was the mastheads of the newspapers of 1945. Um, 1944, laying it out across his recruiting, recruiting poster for interstellar flight, inviting men and women, by the way. And um, this was his dream. Nobody in his family had ever met a scientist. And, you know, the prospects for him to live out that dream must have seemed improbable, to say the least. But, of course, when he grew up, <clears throat> he became the leader, one of the leaders of several interstellar missions. That's an amazing thing. In the space of 30 years, 25 years, he went from having an impossible dream to living it out and to touching future generations of scientists who would carry the torch even further. And so when it comes to improbable dreams, you know, the world that I was born in was in so many ways far uglier than the one I'm living in right now. The racism, homophobia, sexism was not just, you know, some extremist. It was, it permeated the society. It was the agreed upon fiction of what was true. And so even though I know we're not anywhere near where we all want to be, we have come so far in just my lifespan. And that's another source of great optimism and hope for the future. Yeah, that optimism, that hope, 
I, I feel like the the title of this episode could almost be dreams. And it's funny. I'm, I'm actually looking at Carl's uh, Carl's picture here. It's on page 190 of your book. And I was spending some time earlier today just looking at it uh, in amazement of a, a young boy's dream at that time. And you've talked multiple times in this conversation about your kids, your grandkids. So I'm wondering, out of all the enduring mysteries of our origins, which do you think are closest in reach for us answering? I think we're I think we're about to answer uh, the question of the origin of life, which fascinated Carl and which he was a pioneering uh, student of. I think we're you know in the show we actually get to bring the viewer to that lost city at the bottom of the sea. I call it a city, not because it's really a city, but because it's a a group of spires of pinnacles made of calcium carbonate, which, uh, which may have been the site of the origin of life. And we bring, we bring that moment, that moment of Genesis, uh, to life in the series, in one of the sequences of which I'm most proud, and the excitement of that—that's one answer. You know, there. Who knows when the next answers up to the big questions will come? Who knows? No one knows when or if we'll make contact with another intelligent civilization. These are, are you know, these these are our answers that are in our future. But isn't it ironic that here we are at a moment when we can see almost to the beginning of time, really, when we can you know, explore distant worlds, we can send our spacecraft to the stars, we can communicate with one another at the speed of light. And yet, here we are, poised on a precipice, not just for our own species, our own civilization, but for so many of the life forms and environments with whom we share this planet. So it's a critical branch point. And part of my reason for doing my work is just to present the evidence, the facts of where and when we are, and to hope that it will light a spark in others to try to fight for the future. Well, I know that spark has been lit in for many. I mean, your work has had an impact on me, and you were just talking about your work, and it's something I haven't heard you talk specifically about, more of that process. A few minutes ago, you even said there were 987 people who contributed to, to Cosmos coming for season three. When you set off on a new project, whether that be a book or a show, what is your actual creative process like? How do you decide when you're going to bring one of those ideas to life? Well, for this season, it was um, it was a feeling that I wanted to present that vision of the future that was hopeful, hopeful, not the dystopian future you know that we've seen so many times. I really wanted to to realistically portray what that would be like, and the the inspiration really came to me one night when I was surfing around on YouTube. I love YouTube for the music and the performances and just there's so much there. And it's really a treasure trove that, you know, previous generations had no access to. So I'm on YouTube and I find um, Albert Einstein's opening remarks to the 1939 New York World's Fair. Now it's very, 
I was already interested in the World Fair because that's where a five-year-old Carl Sagan was taken. And that's where he discovered that there was such a thing as the future and that science was the only way to get there. So I studied up on the inauguration of the fair, you know, the opening event, and found that in their wisdom, they had asked the smartest man in the world then, and probably ever since, Albert Einstein, to make remarks about cosmic rays, which had only recently been discovered. And at first, they said, we only have 700 words. And the idea was that once Einstein completed his remarks, an announcer would call down 10 cosmic rays to the roof of the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. And the energy from those cosmic rays would be converted into energy and sent through the wires to Queens where they would illuminate the World's Fair for the first time. It would be the largest illumination in the history of the world. And Einstein began his remarks by saying something that I had never seen quoted anywhere else. And yet I think they are among the many profound and truly insightful things that he said. He said, if science is ever to fulfill its mission, as fully as art has. It will take its inner meaning to penetrate to the minds, to the consciousness of the public. And I immediately recognized what had always been the dream of cosmos. Why, why is that so? Why do we all need to understand the inner meaning of what science is telling us? You know, when I talk about the inner meaning, I'm talking about that vision of the pale blue dot. That's another moment of scientific insight that transcends the scientific and the philosophical, the emotional, and the spiritual. Look at that one pixel Earth in the context of just the solar system, which is the tiniest part of the Milky Way galaxy, which is the tiniest part of the visible cosmos, which is only the tiniest part of the universe itself. Think of it. Being our world as it really is, how can you be a rabid and hate-filled nationalist? How can you be a polluter knowing how tiny our life support system is? How can you value money more than you value the things we need to live water, air, climate, our environment. You know, that's the kind of revolution that we really need. We've yet to come up with a form of human social organization which thinks in the time scales of what the scientists think. In other words, not just those 13.8 billion years of the whole history of the cosmos, but the 4 billion-year-old legacy of life on Earth. So much of that life is in our hands right this moment, each of our hands. We live now. We're alive now, which is the greatest privilege of all. 
considering how much time has passed before we got here and how much, how much time will pass after we're no longer here. And so knowing of this legacy implies certain responsibilities. And I, I believe that unless we have a spiritual awakening to what the scientists are telling us, not just about the great history of the cosmos and our world, but also about the dangers that we have created for ourselves. Can you talk about the storytelling element of this all? You, you seem to be someone who's just become this remarkable, great storyteller over the years. And I'm wondering just the thought that goes into, whether it be your book or the show, how you tell great stories. My premise, my starting premise is that we are a story-driven species. I am not a scientist. I was a bad science student, <laughs> a terrible math student, I'm proud to tell you. I felt totally excluded from science. I had no understanding. Some teachers, some of my teachers told me that I could never, I was ineducable, right? But I learned with Carl that there are stories that are a doorway into ideas that are daunting and complex. And so that's really our method on Cosmos is to find those stories that are not only dramatically compelling, so we can grab you and make you want to hear where the story goes, but also in the course of that life or that, that experience, you will suddenly own those ideas. They will belong to you because they've been demystified, because there's no jargon, because we're not trying to show you how smart we are. We're trying to connect with you so that you feel it as strongly as I do. And so that's really the secret of the whole thing. You know, I feel like a bridge between all the people like me who were intimidated by science and the scientists themselves and the history of science, which fascinates me endlessly. You mentioned that bridge, and it has me thinking something you wrote about, and that's mentors. Uh, both regards to, to Carl's mentors and some of the ones who had a profound impact. But I'm also wondering other mentors of yourself. I know you brought up that Einstein quote a little while ago from the World Fair, and, and you say that's basically been the credo of your 40 years of work. Who else just had tremendous impacts on you uh, besides Carl? Um, oh, many, many people. Well, first of all, this may maybe this is too personal an answer, but my grandparents and my parents, had a tremendous impact on me. My grandparents lived in total poverty until my father was able to work his way through college and to raise up his family from, you know, just a really tough life. My mother infected me with the romance of life and the planet. You know, it's, it's so gratifying to me that this is a National Geographic television presentation that part that season two of cosmos the first one that i directed and produced and wrote um was the biggest hit in the history of the national geographic television network some 35 something years and then um that they have been my partners on this new season because our show will be seen in 172 countries which really is just 
such a tremendous platform and makes me very happy. So, you know, the biggest influences on me have been not only uh, the people who loved me and taught me and gave me a sense of the joy of life, but also I I revere the pre-Socratic philosophers of ancient Greece. Even before I knew Carl, this was my first inkling that there, there was that science was something that I could understand. And I understood it through the, the inventors of science who knew much less about nature than we do, but who were the first people to say that there were natural causes for every phenomenon and that we would someday understand these causes and then we would cease to think them the work of the angry gods or the caprice, you know, of, 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 of people who, who ruled our lives. Instead, they looked for the natural cause, and they were the ones who set us on this road, this endless road of sacred searching for those causes, for an understanding of how things work and how they're put together. Albert Einstein, I revere his memory because not only was he, uh, you know, probably one of three or four greatest scientific geniuses, but I revere his sense of conscientiousness about society and civilization and human beings. And then uh, one of the stories that we tell in the new series and in the book is the story of Baruch Spinoza, who... uh, is a hero of mine and always has been because he was the first to envision a society where thought was not controlled by church or state. He believed he was an inventor of the idea that church and state should be separate, which has been the source of so much strength in our country. Uh, and, you know, for, for, for having these many ideas about reading the book of nature. In fact, may I just add that when Einstein was asked, as he often was, you know, if he believed in God, he said, I believe in the God of Spinoza. And Spinoza believed, even before Newton had made his great discoveries of the laws of nature, he believed that the universe was governed by laws, that these laws were knowable and that to study nature was a sacred undertaking. He said, do not search for God in miracles, because miracles are violations of the laws of nature. But it's the laws themselves that are really sacred. So I feel tremendously indebted to him. Uh, Spinoza was Jewish. He was uh, he was. Um, uh, kicked out of the uh, Jewish congregation of Amsterdam. He was excommunicated, one of the few Jewish people I've ever heard of being excommunicated for the things that he was saying, and yet he fearlessly kept saying them. Nothing could deter him, and we owe a big part of our Constitution, actually, to him and his genius. If you were sitting down with him today, what would you ask him? I would ask him, you know, how 
how he came to this understanding, which was almost prophetic. You know, it's it's like Democritus understanding that everything is atoms is composed of atoms in the void. How could a person twenty five hundred years ago intuit the existence of atoms? And I mean, the fact is that the the existence of atoms were not confirmed until Einstein did it in the 20th century. So, you know, maybe these were lucky guesses that Einstein and Spinoza, I'm I'm sorry, that uh, Democritus, uh, the the person who, the father of atomic theory, and Spinoza had, maybe these were just lucky guesses. And, you know, we remember them because they got it right. And those other guys who didn't get it right, we remember less. I don't know, but I still feel that, you know, the fact that in my lifetime, my own lifetime, we have gone from putting the first object into space, Sputnik, ever, ever in the history of the Earth, in 1957 to 1977, 20 years later, launching successful spacecraft missions to the stars. Think of the rate of, of, of growth, of development, how astonishing that is. On the cosmic calendar, it's, it's not even, a, you know, it's, a, it's not even a second. It doesn't even, it's too soon to even show it and too recent. And yet, think of that rate of progress. And, uh, you know, all of it is a result, a long and winding road from those first scientists and their insights. Yeah, I'm thinking about all of those the, those insights and, and the progress and the astonishing bits of progress. I'm wondering, out of everything you've covered, what's the most memorable for you? Ah, of everything I've covered in this season or in any season or the book or... Let's go in, in <laughs> any season. I, I just would love to see where your mind goes with this. Ah, well... You know, uh, personally, I have to say uh, that what I learned about love with Carl is really is the thing that, you know, if I can be honest, that's the thing that keeps me afloat, you know, the beauty of that, the beauty of of truth and love in one place is something that sustains me through everything. In terms of a scientific discovery, just in the writing of this new series uh, with Brandon Braga, my co-writer on the series, we discovered something we hadn't known about, this underground network, this global underground network, which is a collaboration of four kingdoms of life. And it's, uh, it's a way for animals, insects, um, fungi, bacteria, uh, plants to exchange information, nutrition, and even empathy. That is something really amazing to me. It's called the mycelium. And Charles Darwin uh, was one of the first people to begin to study the, the cosmos beneath our feet. And, um, and, Generations of scientists have built on that knowledge and discovered this magnificent network. And we get to we get to take a trip on that network in the new Cosmos series. I have been told by a 
some of the people who've seen it that they will never look at a tree the same way again. Absolutely. I, so, so this is from chapter seven of your book where you cover the mycelium. And I was, I was reading it again today just because I was so fascinated. And just the support system, you, you mentioned trees a second ago, about sustaining the ones who, who were dying next to them through the root system and everything. It's absolutely fascinating. So I cannot wait to see that uh, come to fruition in the show. I'm so excited for you to see it. You know, that's the thing about science. Think of how many worlds were completely foreclosed to us before we began to develop a community of science uh, and to not only have so many different fields of science, but in our time to see those, those fields, which were very strictly separated, come together at the dawn of the space age to work together in an interdisciplinary network. That's amazing. I mean, we wouldn't know the mycelium was there. We wouldn't know about the cosmos in a drop of pond water without the, the, the tools and the methods of science. We, wouldn't, we would never have lifted the curtain of darkness that keeps us from knowing the stars as more than just points of light in the sky. And not only that, the world, the virtually infinite number of worlds that are out there awaiting our discovery. So much, um, so much, including, by the way, the way that our brains work. That's an episode in Cosmos I'm really excited about. A great, uh, if I may say so, uh, I think a stimulating chapter in the book, which is about the man who, again, someone you've never heard of, who set out to prove that dreams are real, that they have a material basis, and he was the first person in history to record a brain dreaming. And he did that in the, in, in, in the 19th century with an ingenious apparatus. The story of that scientist and the little boy who had the dream that he recorded is another great story that I'm so happy to tell in the series and the book. Yeah, no, th- thank you for bringing so many of these stories to light uh, for someone who, when I when I come across them, it, it truly is almost as an awakening, and it's it's an amazing thing to be able to experience, so thank you for bringing that. I know we only have a few minutes left, and I just want to talk slightly just about everything that goes into bringing the show together. You mentioned the 987 people. I'm also just fascinated in awe of your ability, you, you said in the past, you've directed, produced, and wrote the show. What is there... What, what is a thing that goes into the show that someone watching just wouldn't be aware of, but you behind the scenes understand? Well, I mean, most of all, just how many talented, dedicated people are required to make this happen. How many endless days of work they're willing to put into this. Not, you know, it can't be for the money because most of them come from the motion picture business where they can command much higher fees. Ruth E. Carter, the Oscar-winning costume designer of Black Panther, designed our costumes, and I think she did it because this was a meaningful project. Our VFX supervisor, Jeff Oaken, who is a legend in that field and who has created uh, more memorable effects than I can begin to list here, 
he gave the years of his life. Sometimes a single shot would take 50 or 60 iterations, 50, 60 versions that were rejected until we got to the one we wanted. And um, I just think of all the VFX houses around the world, some 14 or 15 in so many different countries, people staying up all night throughout the world so that we could all work together, um, you know, in, in, in a different time zone. All of these things have to come together to make Cosmos Cosmos. I think Neil deGrasse Tyson's performance is absolutely magnificent. Even greater than he was in season two, Cosmos, a space-time odyssey. He had to be willing, you know, to bring it at 11 o'clock at night in some remote location. And of course, you know, every every time we're, we're, we're filming, we're doing so many takes. Everything has to go right. And uh, it's just thrilling. I also think of the scientific the panel of distinguished scientists who were willing to vet both the script and the manuscript for the book. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's so inspiring to me. We had such a great time on season two. Um, I guess 99% of the people who worked on season two came back to work on season three. And so, you know, for me, a woman of 70, be leading this 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 work and to be treated with such kindness at all times and patience has been uh, just part of the of the of the joy of cosmos it, it was it was a wonderful experience that really is remarkable to hear it's just amazing to hear all of those little things we wouldn't know uh, that's leading up to this so you're a few days away from the premiere what do you think Carl would say I don't know what he would say. I mean, you know, part of me thinks I know because we were inseparable for 20 years and we certainly, I certainly, certainly communicated constantly. So sometimes I think I know, but Carl was so brilliant. I, I just don't think I'm up to knowing what he would say. But I, um, I hope he would feel that we are carrying the torch that he lit that candle in the darkness and speaking up on behalf of science at a time when it has been under assault. Uh, the contempt for science has been horrifying to me. It's been a, a great leap backward, especially these last three years. Heart, heartbreaking, really, because obviously in the face of climate change and the coronavirus and all of the many challenges we face, we shouldn't be disparaging scientists and science. We should be listening critically. You know, we should be using our own faculties for critical thinking to evaluate what they say. But they have a great track record. They can get us to the planets, and one day they can take us to the stars. But, you know, you can't lie your way to Mars or any of those other places. Nature will not be deceived. If any one of the people involved are lying with their data, their information, their efforts, then the mission will go horribly awry. And it's also true for the larger mission 
of the future of our civilization. If we lie to ourselves, we're doomed. But if we look squarely at the challenge, I know that we have what it takes to get us through. Wow, Anne, this has been an incredible conversation. I think walking away from this, some of the big takeaways for me are just thinking critically, love and its importance, and then the ability and importance of dreaming for young people. Uh, so I really cannot thank you enough for joining us. I'm wondering where you want the listeners staying connected with you. Uh, I know the book Cosmos, Possible World is out now. The show airs on March 9th. Anywhere you want them going or checking out? Well, I would love for people to watch the show on March 9th. We're showing the first two episodes. And uh, and then, you know, to continue with us all the way on the journey to the final episode 13. And what I'd most like is if this elicits in you, the listener, the reader, the viewer, the desire to know more. You have at your fingertips the greatest amount of information that anyone has had in the history of the world. No great scientist has ever had at their fingertips as much data and information as you have in your phone or any other device. Use that power wisely to make yourself more powerful so that you can stand with all of us and do what we can to make the world a better place. Well, you've been one of those people carrying the torch, so now it's up to us. So, Anne, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. John, i got to tell you, I love this conversation because of the, the time and the questions you asked. I found it tremendously stimulating, and I really want to thank you for it. Well, thank you. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.